your Bibles to the book of Romans, the first chapter. There is a statement here that is interesting given the argument that's made by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, and the statement is Romans 1 verse 5, through whom, speaking of Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. It's that phrase, obedience of faith, that I want us to look at for just a few moments this morning. The book of Romans is an argument in defense of the position that one is saved or justified by faith and not works of law, whether it be the law or law in general. That man is saved by his faith. He's not saved by his works. And yet it's interesting that here at the beginning of this letter, right out the gate, he uses this expression, obedience of faith. When we see the word obedience, we can't help but think that there's some work that is involved in obedience. If we tell our children to do something, well, they, they don't just simply sit there and say, well, I believe in you, but I'm not going to do this. There's, there's some obedience, there's some work that, that is going to result from their obedience. So the obedience of faith, then, is an interesting concept given the argument of Paul in the book of Romans. What he's referring to here is the obedience that would result from the faith which justifies. In other words, we are justified by faith, we are saved by faith, but the result of that faith, the result of that belief is obedience. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you will act on that faith. There will be some obedience that will flow from your faith. As I look at this, one thought that comes to my mind is that what we find in this statement is truth with consequences. In the 16th chapter, and I find this worthy of note as well, it's the last chapter of the book of Romans. Not only do we see it in the first chapter, but we see it in the last chapter as well. In verse 26, Paul writes in regards to the mystery of those things which had been hidden but now revealed. And he says in verse 26, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandments of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. You see that expression again. Within God's redemptive plan, the revealing of this plan that was in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. There was this truth that you will be saved by faith, but from that faith, there will be obedience. And there will be consequences in the absence of a proper understanding of that truth. There are always consequences whenever one chooses not to be obedient to the truth. Let's look at Acts chapter 26, when Paul was making his defense before Agrippa. He's relating his 
conversion experience. He tells about the experience that he had on the road to Damascus when he saw Jesus and Jesus asking the question, why are you persecuting me? And Paul then asked the question, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said in verse 15, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But then look at verse 16 beginning. He then commands the apostle, get up and stand on your feet for this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness not only to the things which you have seen but also to the things in which I will appear to you rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes now remember back in Romans chapter 1 and verse 5 Paul was writing about his apostleship he writes that he was called to be an apostle to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. And now Jesus is saying to him that you're going to be sent to the Gentiles, verse 18, for the express purpose, Acts 26 and verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. So the, the, the idea of the obedience of faith is a truth with serious consequences. What happens if they choose not to open their eyes? What happens if they choose not to render obedience to the gospel? Then they will remain in darkness. They will not be in the light. They will continue to be under the, the dominion of Satan as opposed to God. And then he says that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified or set apart by faith in me. So this is a key element of God's redemptive plan. You are saved by faith, but it is a faith that results in obedience. And if the obedience does not result from that faith, there will be consequences. We see this in the book of Hebrews, and I touched upon this in a recent lesson. But I want you to go back to Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, chapter three. Let's look at this again. He uses the example of the Israelites in the wilderness. And what we're seeing here is that the same truth was presented to them. They had to believe in God. But there was more to that belief than simply mental assent to the truth. There was something else. And in the absence of that something else, there would be consequences. Verse 16, for who provoked him... When they heard, they heard the message. Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those or with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? They heard, but they were disobedient to the message. Verse 19, so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Do you see the connection? They were disobedient because of their unbelief. They refused to exercise faith that would result in obedience. So we do not see in their lives the obedience of faith. And as a result of that, they died in the wilderness. Jack made the point this morning, and I thought this was a, a point uh, well made that we think of only Joshua and Caleb going into the promised land. Well, the entire generation was refused entrance into the promised land 
But that doesn't mean that the entire generation was lost. They had opportunity to, to develop faith over the next 40 years. And so we wouldn't just automatically assume that only two men of the 603,000 that uh, left Egypt, only two men found themselves in paradise. Okay. So then in chapter 4, you'll notice he states in verse 1 of the book of Hebrews, Therefore let us fear, if while a promise remains, of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. So now he's taking this argument, he's taking the example of the Israelites, and he's applying it to Hebrews, to Jews, who were becoming weak in faith. They were becoming weakened in their faith. And they were drifting away from their faith. And what would ultimately happen is they would become they would become disobedient to the truth. Would there be consequences? Yes, there would be. Verse 2, For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. In other words, there was not the obedience of faith. And then the consequence in verse 11, as stated here, for us, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. So it's truth with consequence. But it also raises the question, well, if, if, if we're justified by faith, if we're saved by faith, then where does that put works? If we're not saved by works of law or the law, we're saved by faith, then how do we reconcile that with the idea of obedience resulting from faith? So there's the question. Are we saved by faith or works? Well, we're clearly saved by faith. The answer to this question is yes. Are we saved by faith or works? The answer to the question is yes. So let's look at Romans chapter 3. And I want you to put your eyes on this. It's, it's a rather lengthy reading. But notice what comes screaming out of this, this passage. Romans 3 and verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness, and that's a reference to the law of Moses, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Paul made reference to the prophets earlier in the book of Romans in the first chapter when we looked at that statement of the obedience of faith. So all, all the law, all the prophets are pointing to the culmination of God's redemptive plan. Even the righteousness of God, verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift. That doesn't sound like works. That doesn't sound like obedience. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. And that means it appeased God's wrath. We don't use that word in everyday language. As a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has what? Faith in Jesus. Where, where then, excuse me, where then is the boasting? It is excluded. 
You're not going to be saved based on works. You're going to be saved based on faith. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then he very succinctly restates this in chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus appeased God's anger. He was the propitiation for our sins. And when I look to him through the eye of faith, I find myself justified. I'm not justified based on what I do. I'm justified based on what he did on the cross. It is that level of faith that results in salvation. But that level of faith also will bring about obedience. Not disobedience, but obedience. In James, the second chapter, and, and the book of James was rejected by some of the early reformers who, in particular, Martin Luther, believed that the Catholic Church had gone way too far, and they had, in their view or position that we are going to be engaging in all these works and somehow earning our salvation. Well, he read the book of Romans and he saw some issues with that. But then he reads the book of James and he has a hard time reconciling faith with works or works with faith. But it's not difficult to reconcile the two when you understand and just read and see what James is arguing here. He asked the question in verse 14, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? That's pretty clear, isn't it? Is he not questioning one's salvation who would say he believes, but there has not been the obedience of faith demonstrated in his life? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for the body, what use is that? <coughs> you recognize that something needs to be done. You believe that something needs to be done, but you do not. There is not the obedience of faith. Verse 17, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, verse 18, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. He's not going to be saved on the basis of his works, but he's going to show that he has faith by virtue of his works. That's the obedience of faith. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Read through the gospel accounts. There are numerous instances in the gospel accounts where the demons confess that Jesus was the Son of God. They had no doubt but that he was the Messiah. Did that faith save them? But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. There was the obedience of faith. 
And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Do you see the reconciliation between faith and works? We're saved by faith. But faith has to be demonstrated by action. Here's an example of those who are not saved by their faith. In John the 12th chapter, it is stated in John chapter 12 in regard to the rulers during the ministry of Jesus. John chapter 12 and verse 42, Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. They were convinced by the miracles. They saw that he was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. They heard the things that he said. They believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. They were not willing to suffer the consequences that would come from their confession of the truth that Jesus was the Son of God. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And if you can't get past that, there will not be the obedience of faith of which Paul wrote in the book of Romans. Now this is, this is a little bit complicated, and it's somewhat doctrinal, it's not so much practical, but I want you to think with me now about the, the practical applications that could be made from this true, life-changing applications concerning the obedience of faith. And, and, and this is where we sometimes find ourselves faltering. And, and we should question whether we have that faith that is triggering obedience. You see, we, we, we sometimes want to put the card before the horse. I, I, I want to get all the obedience piece down, and then I'll worry about my faith later. It doesn't work that way. You have to have your faith where it needs to be, and then the obedience will come. It's like enjoying the fruits of your labor. Don't worry about the fruit. Just work hard, and the fruit will come. But in this case, build your faith. Deepen your faith. Strengthen your faith. And then the obedience will come. Now some life-changing applications, and we're going to stay in the book of Romans to make these. The first is evangelism. Well, Paul wrote, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power or the dynamite of God. In it, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Why was it so easy for the apostle to share his faith with others? Why was it never difficult? If you study and read his life, why was it just such a, a natural thing for him to do what he was called to do, and that is to preach? It's because he himself had the obedience of faith. It's because he believed in the gospel. 
And because he believed in the gospel, he was not ashamed of it. Look at verse 17 again, Romans 1 verse 17. This, this expression, from faith to faith. Much has been written about that. What I've read that makes the most sense is this. You're saved based on faith. You believe and your, your belief is reckoned to you as righteousness. And of course there is the obedience that flows from that faith. But then as you are saved by that faith, and as you are strengthened by the knowledge of salvation, it leads to deeper faith. So we go from faith at the point of salvation to increased faith with the passing of time. This is a life-changing application. I will be more likely to talk to others about my faith if I really have it. And I understand that the obedience of faith will lead me to that. Another application is perspective. In Romans chapter 5, we read earlier verse 1 about being justified by faith. But in verse 3, notice the perspective that Paul had. Not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulation. I don't think Paul was just writing about, about the simple trials of life that we all experience. I think he was writing about his tribulation as an apostle. About the difficulties that he faced in the execution of the purpose for which he had been called. How do you come to rejoice in that? Are you there, by the way? When, whenever you think about the sacrifice perhaps that you've made as a result of being a Christian, do you actually exult in that? Wow, I got to, I got to suffer today for, for the name of Christ. We exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You know, this is like a little child who is so excited. He's so excited about something that he just discovered. And he just can't stop talking about it. And he starts talking and, and, and he's just going higher and higher and higher in his excitement. And that's what Paul is doing here. You see, the obedience of faith gives us a perspective that changes the way we think. And it gives us a new life. In Romans chapter 6, as Paul is addressing this question that came up in the minds of some, well, if, if, if grace, if, if we're saved by grace, and if my sin demonstrates the grace of God, then should I not sin so that grace may increase? He writes in Romans 6 verse 2, May it never be. How shall we who died in sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. You see, if I have the faith to say, I understand, I have, I have a new life. I have a second chance, and a third chance, and a fourth chance. I have as many chances to be saved as I have confession of sin. And as long as I continue to confess my sin and walk in the light of Jesus, I have this newness of life. But this newness of life that I really believe in is not going to lead me to delve deeper into sin, but it's going to lead me to walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, which we do when we are baptized, then certainly we also be in the likeness of his resurrection. 
knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. This is the new life. And the obedience of faith leads to that new life. It leads to nonconformity. Are you struggling with conformity to the world? Well, then you need to look at your faith. The obedience of faith will take you away from the world. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And what that says is that as you undergo this renewing of the mind and this transformation, when you read the scriptures and you see what God expects of you, it becomes even more clear that this is the best way. This is how I should live. And if I really believe God, I will trust Him. And I will stop being like the world. It leads to better relationships. In Romans chapter 12, at verse 9, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. All of that is the result of the faith itself. It is the obedience of faith that leads me to behave in such a way that my relationships are improving. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another and do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone, even if they deserve it. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Do you believe that truth? Do you believe that truth? Then your belief will result in obedience. Obedience in the form of not paying back evil for evil. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. Why? Not just so that I'm heaping burning coals on his head. That's God's peace. I'm doing it because I believe in God. I have faith. And that faith is driving me to be obedient to the understanding that I need to love my enemy. I need to do what's best for my enemy. I, I will not, verse 21, be overcome by evil, but I will overcome evil with good. That's a life-changing application. And then the final life-changing application, oddly enough, is work. You see, the further I get away from the belief that I'm going to be saved by my work, the further I get away from the idea that I'm going to be justified by law, and the closer I get to my belief that I'm justified by faith, the, the more motivated I am to work. The more I have nothing to lose by working. I can, I can play this game as reckless as I want to play it, 
I can get involved in as many different works as I want to. If I make a mistake, it's okay. I'm not going to be saved by these works anyway. So I'm just, I'm just, I'm just going to get out there and, and smatter the world with my good deeds. Some may take, some may not. But I know if I throw enough mud on the wall, sooner or later some of it's going to stick. But I'm going to work. Not because I want to be saved by my works, but because I want to be saved by my faith. And I want my works to protect my faith. We see this in the lives of those in the church at Rome. Greek Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers. We looked at this a few weeks ago. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks to whom not only do I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. You see in the life of Priscilla and Aquila, the obedience of faith. In verse 9 of this same chapter, you read about Urbanus, of whom Paul says he is my fellow worker. He wasn't working to be justified based on his works. He was one who experienced the obedience of faith. And the practical application of that was work. He was a fellow worker with Paul. Verse 12, he makes reference to those who are workers in the Lord. And then he makes reference to another who has worked hard in the Lord. Were they doing that because they wanted to be justified by their works? No. They believed in God. Their belief was reckoned to them as righteousness. And then they got this. The obedience of faith. It truly is a life-changing idea that's presented in the scripture. And it's one that I pray will change my life and will change yours. And that will make us all to God's point. Let's go to God now. Let's go.